This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And uh, who have you got with you today? Today I have got Megan Rogers. She is a writer with a PhD. Um, She's with me today to talk about her debut novel, The Heart is a Star. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. It's lovely to have you. So let's get straight in. The protagonist is anaesthetist Layla, who is a mum in her 40s and is being pulled in different directions, literally and metaphorically. What did you want the reader to feel or experience in this novel? That's a great question. I think I wanted to dive beneath the surface. I wanted to take her off her masks and I wanted to share with the reader her internal dialogue and I guess give voice to some of the things that women feel that are often silenced. Amazing and I I really felt that resonate throughout the work. I I really could feel that. Thank you. Um, It was a very moving book actually. Thank you. So you have a PhD in creative writing Um, Where for you is the intersection between the technical and the art? So Mm. how do you integrate your knowledge about writing with the act of creating a character? Oh, that is a great question. I haven't actually been asked that. That's a really beautiful question. I love the idea of intersection too. And I think that for me, it's just practice and practice and practice and drafting. And so I find that, you know, we have this saying in writing, follow the heat, follow the fire. And so when I'm writing and I'm feeling the heat inside me as I'm following a plot or a character, I write it out without thinking about craft, just write it and write it and write it until the fire is gone and the heat is gone and it's out. And then I go back and I read it afterwards and I, I guess, follow more of a technical perspective. Ah, okay. So, and that might be where you include sort of metaphor and... um, So that was my next question, actually. So there is a strong use of imagery Mm. throughout this book. It's beautiful. There's the landscape, the cosmos, the ocean, and they all reflect Layla's internal world and circumstances. So you weave these elements that feed both plot and story expertly. What is your trick to enmeshing all of these elements together so seamlessly? um, I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I love the fact that you noticed that. That really means a lot to me because I think the beauty of being a novelist is that you get to explore ideas and um, industries and uh, knowledge that you don't necessarily get to on a day-to-day basis. So science and astronomy and the medical world and so forth are so fascinating to me. And I think that, you know, a lot of the time authors are trying to get onto the page what's happening in their head. And my head is quite a busy place. (laughs) And so, you know, when I take it onto the page, um, often I'm not necessarily looking at adding, I'm looking at taking things away. Oh, Okay, that's a really good tip for a writer, Mm. I think. Thank you. So for me, there's this sort of operatic, sort of grand scale use of scenery to reflect the emotional state of the character. At what point did you decide that they would reflect each other? So Layla and her sort of landscape. Oh, that's, that's another great question. So from the beginning, I think one of the things I love about Australian literature is the way that we personify landscape. 
And for me, it's it's something that we do so beautifully. We bring it to life and it is another character in the book. And that to me happened from the beginning. You know, I wanted the wild west coast of Tasmania and I wanted the even the, the flora and the fauna and the everything on the ground, from the ground to the sky and under the ocean to reflect how she's feeling. So ambitious and yet you pulled it off. I, I, I'm still, you know, wondering how that all came together and it did, right? It did come together. I'm not going to say how, when, where. I'm not going to give any, <laughs> any spoilers. <laughs> and one thing I loved was the effortless ways the novel blends the big and the small together. Mm, so I've you. asked you to read a little passage. Sure. and um, So in this passage, an entire life is reflected through one piece of fruit <laughs> um like all the best work it's simple and yet skillful would you mind reading please oh, i'd love to thank you i feel honored then i met maggie and she had this habit of cooking an orange over an open fire usually outside she'd section the fruit and put the pieces one by one in her mouth and then in my mouth it was the closest thing to love i had ever tasted ever smelt then when I lived with you and I would eat those same oranges over and over again, it was as if I was trying to conjure her but never could, and so the oranges tasted of longing. Last night, Maggie made me over the fire, it again, and there it was, the taste of love, but this time different gratitude as well. She stops a moment, takes a breath, but soon she'll be gone, my beautiful Maggie, and I know that when I eat oranges then, they will be made of grief. Those oranges made me scared, made me feel loved, made me sad, made me feel loved again and will help me grieve. The whole human experience wrapped up in that one piece of fruit. Awesome. That was just astonishing writing. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for reading. Another thing that struck me about this book was the plot twists. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were blindsiding. So... They were so unexpected yeah. and it, when I was thinking back over it, I think it's the use of this first person narrative and you, we're right on board with that character and you're able then to disguise the plot twists so well. Mm. So without giving anything away, how do these plot twists arrive for you as a writer? Oh, that's a really good question too. So I like, I don't write autobiographically. I like to write the way I read, which is even though I plot and have a scaffolding when I'm writing, I do get to know the characters and the plot as I'm writing. And so, you know, there's that beautiful saying, um, you know, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And so I have to feel surprised. I have to feel sad. I have to feel happy or else for me, it's not working. And so... Uh, often, you know, I'd be in the shower or wherever these things happen and I'd be thinking about the plot and it would, something would just come up and I'd quite literally be running down the hallway, <laughs> you know, towel dragging behind me and, and write it down. Um, and if I felt deeply surprised and moved, then um, I knew it, w it was right. And that, that's another example of, I guess, following the heat and following the fire. Um, and for me, I really wanted to use first person so that the reader is uncovering information as the protagonist is uncovering information. That was really important for me because I feel as though in life, because I wanted my book to mirror the real world and the real lived experience so much, that we are blindsided by truth, often family truths as well. Um, and I wanted to encapsulate that on the page. You do that. Um, I, I feel like perhaps as a writer, you're a pantser, not a plotter. 
Yeah, I'm probably a bit of both. As, yeah, oh, okay. I, I'm probably a bit of both. Um, I think that uh, as a working mum, I have to know that the time that I'm spending writing is going somewhere. So I do call it scaffolding. So I'm writing to something, but I, you're right in that I do uncover things as I'm writing. I just need to know that the time I'm spending is where it should be spent. Okay. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so back to sort of the reader experiencing alongside Layla's emotional journey we, mm. we sort of feel her emotional maturity as well in a way um, mm. and then the novel begins modestly and simply and the character's truth develops very gently but significantly was this hard to locate this changing truth of Layla mm. throughout yeah that's interesting I I didn't <clears throat> I didn't want to um, write a two-dimensional character you know I guess we, none of us do do we no no <laughs> but um you know I guess what I wanted to do was um add to her dimensions as the novel un was uncovered and that to me included flashbacks mm -hmm. you know and it included um also other people supplying information and so it was really important to me um through developing her as a character that she was almost getting to know herself as we were mm. and are and so you know, for me, I enjoy reading female characters that are complex and messy and real um, and that don't kind of um, succumb to the gender stereotypes of likability in women. And in that way, you've really sort of stripped bare the, mm. the notion of what it is to be human and, yeah. to, um, and to be female and, and, you know, to be in the crux of all these moving parts as we are in life mm. as females in, in modern day, mm. essentially. Um, so Layla finishes in a far different place than when she starts, mm. where she starts. So thematically, the novel is about sort of laying bare the lies that we tell ourselves and other people. Mm. <clears throat> this is very deep, emotionally very vulnerable, mm. vulnerable territory, I felt. Mm. Um, and I was... I felt that it affected me in this huge way. Mm. Um, did you undergo a journey yourself in writing the book? Mm, yeah, I think we all do as writers, don't we? I think, mm. and we become quite close with our characters, whether they're like us or not. I think that Layla taught me things that I didn't even know I needed to learn. Uh, although her story is so radically different from mine, she's still experiencing so much that women experience in this day and age. And I wanted more than anything to get her to a place where rather than having the ending tied up into a beautiful, neat little bow, she doesn't need the external um, validation anymore and she can sit by herself and find some sense of um, a future and hope. Exceptional. Um, you will not get through this novel without at least one tear. I say that to the listener <laughs> and to the reader, potential reader. There is vulnerability and forgiveness. It's gutsy and expertly crafted. It's about facing what's real within us when we open our eyes and we become better people for it. The Heart as a Star reminds me of who we are and why we're here as people. Thank you, Megan, for this incredible piece of work but also for being my guest here today. Thank you, I feel honoured. And now to my guest. Dislocation and displacement permeate Eugen Bacon's novel Serengeti. So Eugen, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you so much, David. I'm excited to be here. Ah, now, 
Chun Tzu is your lead character, and she seems to be having a very rough day. At, well, what happens at work to begin with? It's the worst day from hell, and I think a bit of Chan Tzu encapsulates some of my experiences as an African-Australian. I experience hybridity and being betwixt. And this is some of what Chan Tzu experiences, feeling that sense of unbelonging. And so... Chanzu is unable to sustain a, a permanent role and, and they feel that it's because of racial discrimination and so those themes of otherness and unbelonging and social injustice come out in the story. I thought others might be able to identify with that as well because she loses her job but her boss Warren expects her to train a replacement and a lot of people find themselves in that situation today. That's right. There's a lot of quiet injustice. Um, Australia is not outrightly racist. Like, as a woman who has a black son, I don't have to train my son how to respond to the police when they stop him. But I worry about the opportunities that will come his way because of the colour of his skin and because... Does he really feel that he belongs fully in this country? So those are some of the themes of um, unbelonging, that otherness that I really wanted to bring out. But this dislocation also extends to her family and her wife, Scarlett, because she returns home only to find what? That's right. So Chanzu has had this day from hell and has lost, well, quits their job in outrage, goes and gets absolutely shit-faced at a bar (laughs) and comes home to find that, you know, the wife has replaced her with uh, a man. And that's even worse because, you know, Chanzu... Really, it's it's a double displacement. Not only have they lost the job, now they've lost also the wife, and not to another woman, to a man. But also then, there's a couple of things now that start taking place. Uh, your description of sex, you're thinking, no, no, but the room is grunting, yes, yes. Uh, so the room is coming to life, not just the, the, the characters being animated, and you describe it as an archaeologist observing the restoration of flesh. <laughs> I think like uh, Megan, I am also a very immersive writer where I need to feel the text and I need to feel the characters, and I had a lot of fun with this scene. <laughs> It was very immersive and I could feel the room and I could feel Chanzu's outrage and I could feel Scarlett's disdain. It's almost playful. There's a quiet rage between them. But also the rage and the playfulness. It's uh, intersecting, as a word from the previous interview, uh, coming together, which in a way is disorienting because that's not what we're expecting. That's right. In a way, the, the story, it's almost like the movie Inception in the sense that not everything is what it seems, and a lot of it is very internalised, what Chanzu feels and what Chanzu perceives. And uh, there's an incident where uh, in Fitzroy, in a pool called Intercool, where Chanzu experiences what they feel is racism. And if you'd like me to read just a re- little bit... By all means. In terms of Chanzu's outrage. Um, so this woman in a pool refused to let Chanzu share the pool. And so Chanzu just jumps in and the woman pinches her. And so this is the little part that I want to share with you. 
something snapped and you stood in the water, your feet touching the meter floor. You heard yourself say, you colonialist, slave trader. It ought to have been a bit funny, maybe not, that you chose to combine two historically averse yet equally suffocating words. <laughs> and so the, the rage, like something happens and something just snaps in Chanzu because not like everything is just going wrong. You know, the marriage is not going right and the outburst just comes out. But there's also something else behind this. And this is where we get to the word Sony, which yes. neither Warren, her boss, has had, or Scarlett. They're not ashamed. Can you Give us a background into this word. That's right. So the book integrates a lot of Swahili words. I, I, I come from um, Tanzania. I'm African-Australian. And I integrate the Swahili into it. So Sony means shame. And it's a very, very normal word where people would say, don't you feel shame? Don't you feel any Sony? And so Sony comes up. Like I think the African culture is very similar to the Asian culture, which is very close to saving face. And, you know, like uh, the shame is so significant. But uh, what you find politicians and people who don't feel shame in that way. And so there's a lot of outrage about it. But it permeates society in Australia, in other parts of the world. And there are one or two political figures, which we will not name, <laughs> that don't seem to have any at all. All. Absolutely. And it's the shame. Having Sonny helps you uh, work better in the society because you respect other people. You respect what family will think of you. You respect about what you bring to the community. And this makes interaction between characters possible. But when it disappears, again, we're adrift. Absolutely. Chansu then finds work at Serengoti. And this is located in, and you've got to say it twice, Wagga Wagga. <laughs> this is a little joke of yours that permeates the book. What is Serengeti? And yes. Initially, Serengeti was to be based in Tasmania, Tassie. And then I visited Wagga Wagga, and I learned that you don't say Wagga Wagga. You say it's Wagga, Wagga Wagga. And only the residents can say it once, Wagga. If you're a visitor, it has to be Wagga Wagga. And I wanted to create something that integrated my hybridity as an African-Australian. And if you know Africa a little bit, Serengeti mm. is a national park in Tanzania and so it's like a, I brought a little bit of Tanzania into Australia in Wagga Wagga in this migrant community and uh, the, the irony of it is that Chanzu doesn't experience that sense of belonging even in Wagga Wagga in, in Serengeti with this community that is meant to be you know her own people. But it's an alternative place it's a place for uh, refugees but again, we get this sense of disorientation yes. because there's on, on a couple of levels because one, their practices are different, but also then their values are different given their experiences of war and abuse that they've uh, been exposed to. So in many ways, the world is turned upside down. So... What are some of the practices at Serengeti? How do they treat people? And what are some of the values? Yes, I, I wanted to create this world that was a 
cultural paradox because people come from other worlds as migrants in Australia and they come with their cultures and they come with their heritage and they come with their values as well and suddenly they're in this new world where, where they might need to conform to different ways of doing, different ways of thinking but they still have their beliefs like in Serengeti they're very superstitious and you have the, the healer twins Tau and Lau who are like the wise elders and that is something also very African where you have the respect for the elders. And so Tao and Lao, every now and then, are the ones who help to resolve the matters that arise. And, and Chanzu almost realizes they become like parental figures, the parent that they never had. But there's also Aunt Mai. And uh, I think the reader might realize in your life, you, you need to have an Aunt Mai in your life. You know, somebody who believes in you no matter what. But also stealing and all of these sorts of things are valid uh, practices because they've had to survive previously and so they're bringing in these sorts of ideas which are, again, dislocating. That's right. They are traumatised. They've come through horrific journeys and the book does touch upon some of their journeys and some of the characters and it makes you realise that eventually it's about survival. If somebody steals to feed their children, it's about survival. And talking of survival, we end up with some deaths at Serengeti and the novel almost then becomes a murder mystery. But before we go there, we need to go back and introduce Tex. Yes. Who's Tex and what's his association? Because there's a strand through the novel of his voice coming in. That's right. So Tex is Chanzu's twin brother and normally twins have a really strong connection and that's another parallel story that um, shows the uh, disconnect because Chanzu experiences another split because Tex is not as close as Chanzu would like and Chanzu feels that they, must, that they need to protect Tex from um, their dark ways. But here we go with a couple of challenges because one concern Chanzu has is that will she turn out to be like her brother who has in fact disappeared and his girlfriend has disappeared as well. So he's not somebody who is reliable or stable. Not at all and there, there's a darkness in text that Chanzu tries to rescue and Chanzu gets into trouble for defending text every now and then and covering up for text. And there's a parallel then That's at right. Serengeti with Valerie and Sticky. That's right. Valerie's uh, one of the coordinators at Serengeti. And what we find is that um, there's a challenge here. Your fondness for the boy covering for him like this is his downfall. Yes, and Chanzu has been covering up for Tex and covering up for him and everything that he does and eventually will that be his downfall? So in many ways again we've got the world being turned upside down because we think we're helping. If we help somebody that will restore things to normal but it might actually have the opposite outcome. That's right. It, it almost goes back to the African saying, uh, why give somebody a fish, you teach them to fish. So sometimes by helping and helping and helping, we're making things worse. 
But it leads to a sort of existential crisis for Chan Tzu. Sometimes you feel rearranged, hidden in the pocket of life's airport, one that puts you on a tiny plane on the way to nowhere that's now somewhere. You ask yourself existential questions, the how and why stories, but nothing comes at you flying low so you can make out the roads and you know you... And you know to leave those questions well alone. Yes. It's a very internal story because a lot of it is also about Chanzu, how they feel and how they navigate their world. And it's about the questions they ask of themselves. Am I good? Am I bad? Um, the, uh, how do I belong? Do I belong? Does it matter? This then goes to another level <laughs> because we're worried about where the reader belongs That's right. in all of this. There's a, a sort of disassociation. Firstly, with your style, which is dynamic and energetic, there are, I mean, at one point, I think that love scene also had references to football. <laughs> and that, that, that football AFL image comes in as well. And it's discordant in a way. So that is disassociating. But also this notion of... Uh, our values, which we impose, only to see that they've been turned upside down yeah. uh, and, and can we help. There's another element there which we can't really go into. What information can you give us about Chansu's uh, job and what she does for a living without yes. giving anything away? <laughs> so Chansu's role in Wagga Wagga in Serengeti is to create a program that will help people feel that they belong. It's almost like create your own adventure, create your own story. And that also comes to that um, sense of belonging. I wanted to create a story that engaged with difference, and that meant uh, even in the in the whole perspective, it's a story that's a you narrative in the second perspective where it's addressing um, Chanzu. So in that way, it also unsettles the reader, and it's it's very different also in the language and the energy and the pace and. Uh, it's like a story within a story. I am intrinsically a short story writer, and so I hide little stories in my novels, and so there are little, little vignettes hidden within the, the novel. But it begs the question of how much we create our own reality and the stories we tell ourselves to justify what we're doing. So, you know, we justify helping somebody else. That's a part of a, a bigger narrative. Obviously, it's helping the community, but is it? And that's so, right. So... The reader then ends up struggling to justify all that's taking place. That's right. And what I really wanted in Serengeti was for the reader to find that immersion, to be able to understand that sense of dislocation that sometimes as an, uh, a migrant people might feel so that people might be able to engage with that difference. And you write speculative fiction and the style and I've just opened up at random here perhaps you need a pit bull terrier one you'd feed on chocolate and cayenne pepper then teach to decapitate you feel as though all your life you've missed the train like you should be somewhere you're not nothing is sound you're like a kid whimpering at burgerland I said a double whammy with no onions or mayonnaise the attendant saying sorry kiddo and you're still stuck with stinkers and mayo <laughs> I mean, the, the mixture of metaphor, imagery and ideas here, 
it's astonishing at times. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun with this book, but not 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 initially, because um, how it started, the publisher who published Dung Blank, Black Thing said to me, I would like another book from you, but I don't want a collection of short stories, and I don't want speculative fiction. And, and uh, you know, I thought, like, bloody hell, Barry, like, I write short stories and I write speculative fiction. And slowly these stories started coming to me. And uh, I think I did slip in some speculative fiction in in the superstition that comes out and the mystery that comes out and also in the in the cultural thoughts that characters have and just on a final note there's an, an in joke there when uh, Chanzu is talking to uh, Tex and the troubles he's got and you put an in joke there did you ever try writing speculative fiction <laughs> <laughs> I did have a giggle writing that <laughs> so the novel is Serengeti Eugen Bacon is the author, and it's from Transit Lounge. So, Eugen, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, David. And once again, your author, Lisa? Yes, so I have Megan Rogers, The Heart is a Star, and the publisher is Pan Macmillan. HarperCollins. HarperCollins. Sorry, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. HarperCollins Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you, thank you. Now we'll have to go to City Limits. City, City Limits. Limits.